Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. So I thought this week, Neil, we'd, we'd talk a little bit about China. And China yes. is, is... Always a, kind a of, serious problem. It's a very serious problem. And I think the mood in the world at the moment is one of increasing kind of tension between the West and China. We've been talking, you know, for some time now about the idea of reducing our dependence on them for various things that we trade with them, particularly kind of technology. And at the same time, we've got this continual kind of uh, undercurrent of concern about whether we're going to end up at war with them over Taiwan and I think just last week. Or other things in the Far East. Or other things in the Far East. Clearly very expansionist tendency at the moment, apart from the aggressive noises towards Taiwan. So they are throwing their weight about. Yes. We're very lucky to get, uh, get back an old friend of the show, George Magnus. And George is, of course, research associate at Oxford University's China Centre, He's at SOAS and he was once the chief economist at UBS. So welcome, George. Good to have you back. Thank you very much. Good to, uh, good to be back. I think the, probably the way to start this is to go back in time to the origin of, of what's now this whole you know, debate about how close our trade relationship should be with China, which is the decision in 2001 to admit China to the World Trade Organization. I think at the time it was almost it was almost it was a decision that was so enormously important it was just went through on the nod didn't it I don't think it was quite as simple as that but certainly there was a lot of enthusiasm some suspicion obviously in the US Congress but maybe nothing like you would find today for example but Bill Clinton was certainly an enthusiast and um, used his office to facilitate China's entry and it was generally at the time thought to be a good thing what did people think would happen once China came into the world trading system? Did they imagine it would grow as much as it did? And did they imagine that it would bring about political changes in China, which would, which would improve the relationship with the West? Well, therein hangs a tale. At the time, and I think you have to kind of get out of the 2023 mindset, you know, yeah. and go, go back to the way that things appeared in the 1990s when obviously China lodged its application long before 2001. Mm. Uh, So there were a lot of negotiations going on. I think it took about the best part of a decade, at least, for these negotiations to come to fruition. And of course, this was a period when, I mean, there was real meaning behind Deng Xiaoping's mantra about reform and opening up. I mean, China was doing both. It was privatizing, you know, state enterprises, It was uh, introducing the early measures and legislation to create a housing market out of what used to be a housing welfare system, and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of optimism that, you know, that China was moving very quickly to embrace aspects of the market economy. I mean, well, I think in hindsight, we deluded ourselves into thinking that they were going to look politically much more like the uh, what we understand to be 
the most sensible political system with increased freedom and increased human rights and all these other things which were going to flow from the trade deal. You're quite right. And in fact, because of my long-winded sentence, I'd actually only reached a comma, but you... (laughs) (laughs) Calm down, Neil. Let the guest speak. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the other part of it, as you say. So I will only say very briefly, but, you know, it was also thought that as China became a market economy, it would also become a liberal democracy. Can I just ask one question about that, which is three years before, four years before China enters the WTO as a burgeoning market stroke, becoming more free, you did have the handback of Hong Kong. And throughout that period, I think that the run up to the handback of Hong Kong Chris Patton, who was then the governor, had tried all sorts of ways of getting the Chinese to accept the advance of of some sort of democracy in Hong Kong, the obligations that they had under the basic law to move towards democracy, and had been very, very stoutly rebuffed by Beijing on almost every, every aspect of this. Did that ever make people think, well, maybe political freedom isn't so much on the agenda? Yeah, you know, there clearly were question marks raised about whether and for how long China would be committed to the terms of the handover. And I suppose a lot of people probably did think that it was only a matter of time before Hong Kong became, you know, another Chinese city, which is obviously kind of where we are right now. Yeah, But I think certainly in terms of trade and commerce, I think there was this genuine belief that with the triumph of liberal capitalism as a system, that opening up and free trade, uh, so-called, and globalization and all that would have politically powerful consequences, which would be to make people, including the Chinese Communist Party, realize that opening up and, and freedoms would flow naturally. Obviously, we got the wake-up call in the end. But at the time, when I think about, and I've had this discussion with a lot of people about, should we have let China into the WTO? My view was, is, I think we were right to let China into the WTO. I think we were wrong in the way that we exercised governance and a belief about what that involved and might entail. So, At what point did the uh, scales start to fall from the eyes of the China watchers? You might argue that some are still, you know, still have their eyes, you know, firmly glued to the past and think that that it isn't another country. But I think the wake up really, I mean, it probably started before Trump, I would say, but it wasn't really as consensual as I think it's now become. So I think if you look at the sort of Pew opinion surveys that are done in multiple countries, which now, you know, show universally negative opinions about China, I mean, for what they're worth anyway, back in the sort of Obama period, for example, and there was a kind of a growing suspicion, you know, disbelief really about China, but it really wasn't kind of mainstream. Well, whatever we think about the Trump administration, which is quite a lot, it did mark a break from the past, actually. Can I just go back for a second before Donald Trump? An earlier stage in the post-2001 period, which is 2008 and the financial crisis. Because I think there is an argument that until 2008, the Chinese sort of thought that 
you know, free markets and liberal democracy for all their problematic nature at least seemed to be delivering the goods. And then 2008 came along and persuaded them that the West wasn't as strong as they thought and was unstable, had all these, you know, structural problems. And that sort of made them think, well, actually, we don't need to go down this route. Do you think there's anything in that? I attribute a lot of the world's ills to to the financial crisis, actually. I think this was a kind of an important, again, another break point, because certainly after 2008, China starts to become very much more opinionated, really, I mean, in a very kind of more forceful way, about its role in the global economy, its size, obviously, it's, it wasn't affected in the way that most of us in the liberal leaning democracies were, Hmm. it didn't have a financial crisis as such. And there are lots of opinion being expressed uh, officially by China's political leaders about what they start to see as, you know, the decline of the West. And so they start talking about, you know, the weaknesses, the structural, you know, flaws of capitalism, of the liberal capitalist system, and about why, you know, their model of economic growth is superior, the weaknesses of a dollar-based international economy, which needs to become much more multilateral or multipolar. So there is a big change that happens even before Xi Jinping comes to power in 2012. So those last four years of the previous administration in China are definitely a period when things start to happen. You know, we think China becomes more truculent because of its militarization of islands in the South China Sea. Foreign policy suddenly starts to become a little bit more, you know, feisty. And I suppose the whole Taiwan debate really begins to kind of rev up a little bit there as well. Do you think that 2008 and the lessons China thought it learned from that is why Xi Jinping moves away from the system that the Chinese have had of of a sort of bureaucratic control of power and moves towards becoming a kind of new emperor, ruling for life? No, I don't think that's the reason, actually. I think he's always Mm -hmm. been like that. Okay. From, you know, the sort of biographies that Sinologists have written about him. Mm. and about his youth and everything that he did in his political life leading up to his elevation to chairman of the Communist Party in 2012. I think the 2008 crisis probably would have underscored for him why he was right, but I don't think it was a catalyst in changing his mind or his view about China's uh, destiny. What does he think that China's destiny is? The not very secret, because they talk about it quite a lot, goal is for China to have become, by 2049, which is the centenary, I mean, these things mean a bit more in China than I think they do perhaps in other parts of the world, but the centenary of the birth of the Communist Party was in 2021, and by 2035, which is halfway to the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic in 2049, you know, China is supposed to become a prominent, well-to-do economy, you know, high standard of living and so on. By 2049, I mean, the language really is about China becoming the primary power, the dominant country. They talk not necessarily about rivaling the United States, but in effect about supplanting it. I think Xi Jinping, you know, along with his new buddy Vladimir Putin, I mean, I think they they seriously believe that we are at an inflection point in history where we are in terminal decline and they are in the ascendant. Would that extend to further 
military adventures in the South China Sea and in other neighbours apart from Taiwan? Well, not as far as we could tell from, you know, public rhetoric and the way that Sinologists think about what Chinese officials mean when they talk about these things. Taiwan is definitely, as you know, I mean, it, you know, it is to reintegrate, as they see it, this renegade province into the, the motherland or the fatherland. I mean, in this sense, I don't think it has kind of aggressive intent to the sovereigns of Southeast Asia or anywhere else in the region. I mean, China unquestionably is the dominant power in Asia. It certainly would like to drive the US Pacific fleet back towards Hawaii. <laughs> um, the Marianas Trench. <laughs> and, I, and, I think, and, I, and I think the sort of the 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 declaration of sovereignty as they see it over their maritime rights in the South China Sea and East China Sea obviously contrasts with the views of the Philippines and of Vietnam and of uh, Japan and Korea and so on. So there is a problem there, which is not going to go away. And if the United States, you know, continues to want to have a presence in that part of the world, which we assume it does, including what they call freedom of navigation operations, which is the right to sail their warships in internationally agreed waters. This is going to be a continuous flashpoint. Can I just uh, grab the con for a second and uh, sail this ship away from the Taiwan Strait back to the subject of trade? You said earlier about Donald Trump that uh, you mentioned that this idea that he had said about the Chinese and in the context of the trade relationship, you took us all for a ride. Do you think the Chinese did take America for a ride? And, and if so, in what way? Okay, there's a lot of hindsight doing a lot of heavy lifting here, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> That's what we like. <laughs> Lift away. My very successful investment firm is called Hindsight Securities. Anyway. Yes, yes. Thank you, Mr. Madoff. We'll let you know. Um, well, I think that looking back, the terms under which we let or we admitted China into the WTO mm. and the poor governance that was exercised in terms of its obligations. That's what I would believe to be the problem. In a way, you could say the Chinese took us for a ride, or you can just say, well, they exploited a situation in the context of the governance of the WTO where they were not obliged to change. Yeah. And in a way, you could say, who could blame them, really? Because that's kind of what they are. I think that's right. But let's come to where we are now, which is that Trump has jumped up and down, but he's actually made change the weather in this respect, in that... In Biden's administration is also on board with the idea that something went wrong with the Chinese relationship and we need to do this thing called decoupling. Do you think it's practical now to unscramble this omelette? It was really tough. I mean, decoupling, as you know, there's been a lot of sort of discussion about whether we should call it de-risking or uh, decoupling. Yes. I don't really think it makes any difference. They are forms of disengagement, right? after the last 30 years in which all we did was engage and integrate. And so we've basically embarked, in my view, on a kind of a process. Some people like a guy called Evan Greenberg, who was the, I don't know if he still is, but he was the CEO of Chubb. Yeah. Then more recently, the CEO of, uh, of Mercedes, you know, have been on record as saying, well, decoupling is impossible. We can't do it. Yeah. But these are titans of industry, you know, which we aren't. 
<laughs> yep. But I think that's naive because actually it's, it's not like switching a light switch on and off. You know, decoupling or disengagement or de-risking is a process and it depends yeah. where you want to be on that continuum from full engagement to full rupture of commercial relations. Yeah, you can't disengage until you have to. Also, there are lots of things. I mean, it's taken us like 20, 30 years to build up China-centric supply chains and the whole infrastructure of commerce, you know, that's around that. It's not going to change overnight. And of course, it isn't. And we don't see any evidence of disengagement in trade volumes at all, except obviously in certain types of products which are covered by export restrictions and export controls, e.g. semiconductors, Huawei, and so on and so forth. But I think that in terms of where the, where incremental investment is going, it certainly seems to be going to other places than in China. Yeah. Thinking about, in view of what's happening in Ukraine and the behaviour of their closest, I was going to say ally, they're not really, their universal friend in Russia. Frenemy, I think is the word um, you're looking for. And <laughs> has the experience of the last 15 months change the Chinese attitude, obviously towards Taiwan and or to Russia itself? I, I don't think it's changed it towards Taiwan at all. But I'm guessing that their kind of friendship without limits agreement, which was publicized, well, between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin at the Beijing Winter Olympics in February 2022. I, I'm guessing that the Chinese probably feel slightly chastened by that now, but only because the Russians have screwed up, you know, what everybody thought was going to be walking all over Ukraine, taking control and wiping their hands and that's it. Uh, so that hasn't really worked out, obviously. I mean, if it had done, I think, you know, they would be crowing about new world order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Fortunately, the Ukrainians had something to say about this, and, and so did NATO. And obviously, we're still in a still have to see how it's all going to kind of uh, evolve. But I think this kind of friendship without limits is probably does have some limits, actually. And the Chinese have already said, you know, they have been quite vocal about they would not approve, and the use of nuclear weapons is absolutely unconscionable. They've taken the step of at least having a conversation with Zelensky, which they didn't before. They've sent an envoy to Ukraine for what it's worth and probably think that they could be in a position of trying to broker a ceasefire or play a role in some kind of future of Ukraine. Obviously, at the same time, I mean, we don't really trust them very much because we kind of feel that they wouldn't stand by idly if Putin looked as though he was going to be undermined severely by Ukrainian success in the battlefield, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think China is still treading as kind of a bit of a fine line, really. Mm. You mentioned earlier the CPTPP, this Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Pact, mm. which... Very, Funnily enough, Britain has just joined. I didn't good. notice that we'd sailed around the world, but we <laughs> apparently have. And uh, we're now a Pacific trading nation. Now, China is itself applying to join this body. It hasn't got in before us, which is <laughs> suggests that the application, the qualifications are fairly elastic. Do you think this is a sort of rerun of uh, the same debate that was in 2000? This is not a WTO redux, right? In 2001, and before then, when negotiations were going on, China was the sixth, seventh biggest economy in the world. 
Um, now it's second, at least in terms of measurement in you know conventional U.S. dollars. Market numbers. Yeah. It was um, a negligible proportion of global GDP. It's now about eighteen percent. Uh, and so on and so forth. So China 2023 is not the same place as it was in, you know, mm. 1993 or 2003, etc. There's a lot of uh, proverbial waters gone under the bridge since then. So I think it's quite interesting because the Chinese application, the formal application to join this organization, CPTPP, was done within a day or two of the announcement of this extraordinary acronym AUKUS, right? So Australia, the United Kingdom and US, which was the agreement to share nuclear powered technology for powering submarines. And Taiwan lodged its own application to join the organization, I think within a week or two of of China. Number one is it doesn't present countries with the same sort of opportunity or dilemma that maybe it does in 2001, because because China's a different place and we think about it so much differently than we did 20 years ago. Whether it'll happen or not, I think is a moot point. I think the UK was pretty much oven ready for joining this organization, whatever the virtues <laughs> or, or otherwise of joining a Pacific trading group, you know, turn out to be, which probably are not huge, even by the Department of Trade's own calculations, it's going to be sort of something like 0.03% of GDP or something. But actually, it does give us a very interesting political kind of vantage point, which we otherwise wouldn't have had, because uh, China's and Taiwan's applications, I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine that they'll both be let in. It's not impossible to imagine that neither of them will be let in. And it's very contentious if you let in China, but not Taiwan, and even more contentious if you do it the other way around. So the politics of admitting China into the trade organization is uh, fraught, right? It's got to be a unanimous decision to set up a working party to proceed with negotiations. And even if it were unanimous, those negotiations could go on forever. It would be like Turkey's accession to the EU. <laughs> Infinite. Yeah. It'll all be over by Christmas. Yeah, but, <laughs> they don't but, say in Turkey. They don't say... <laughs> <laughs> They don't say which Christmas, of course. No, quite. <laughs> Think about the countries that might have reservations about China's accession. So the UK will, Australia will, Japan will, Canada will. Mexico might, because Mexico and Canada, of course, are bound to the United States through the successor to NAFTA, which is called Uzmukar, which is the United States, Mexico, and Canada. <laughs> Thank you, Donald Trump, for that one. <laughs> and, and one of the clauses in this trade agreement is that if one of the contracting parties wants to do a free trade agreement with a non-market economy, brackets, mm. guess who, Yeah, they can be kind of thrown out of the North American trade agreement. Ah, Okay. But let, let's think about the world in, say, where are we now? It's, it's, we're 22 <laughs> years after 2001. Let's throw it through another two, 22 years to 2045. Do you think our trade relationship with China will be decoupled if you go forward another 21 years? Or do you think we will be sort of in the muddle we're in today? You can you can be confident now, George, because we'll both be dead by then. So yeah, just be all right. Just say what you think. <laughs> yeah, it's free lunch in a way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, muddle is is my default option, to be honest. Obviously, 
things could go terribly awry, right? Have a war. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, I think we probably are set in for a, a protracted era of competition in which standards in technology, telecommunications, internet protocols, and what have you, will be different, right? You Stuff you can use in China, but nowhere else, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. There may be some things where I suppose, you know, there's a sort of a communality of interest, but I mean, there may be, there'll also be many things where we will agree to disagree and develop an alternative market. So I think bifurcation or decoupling or disengagement may not be across the board. If you're making kind of Gucci handbags for Chinese middle class consumers, I don't think you really have very much to worry about. But obviously, there's a whole range of products where things will be very contentious. Mm. So, yeah, I think this decoupling thing is going to go further, actually. Any chance of China ever de- de- democratizing? If you mean under Xi Jinping's leadership, no. No. <laughs> Mind you, he may not be immortal. It's interesting. So we call him president, right? But the Chinese don't really call him president. His power derives from the fact that he's general secretary of the Communist Party and chairman of the Central Military Commission. Mm. So even if he became a dustman tomorrow, or a, uh, a a garbage engineer, <laughs> he would still be a very powerful person because of those two positions. He would be the world's most powerful dustman. He would be. <laughs> yeah. I can't see him emptying the bins myself. But still. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app, as that will help new listeners find us.